This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by Acura, leading the way in auto innovation for over 30 years. Keep listening to discover how Acura sees things differently in the pursuit of precision-crafted performance. So, I'm sorry, I just have to go back. You say you hang out with Snoop Dogg on a regular basis? Hi, I'm Takara Small, and this is I'll Go First from the Globe and Mail. This is not your average tech podcast. We're going beyond the headlines and behind the million dollar deals to chat with innovators and industry trailblazers. On this episode... My name is Bruce Lenton. I'm uh, the founder of a company called Canopy Growth, and we are the largest legal producer of cannabis on the planet. It seems like it's been a long time coming, but as of October 17th, cannabis is officially legal in Canada. And many are eyeing the new industry, anticipating record growth. But what does that mean for healthcare, for incarcerated Canadians, or for people crossing the border? Bruce Linton is the man behind one of Canada's biggest cannabis companies, Canopy Growth. As legalization comes into effect, Bruce finds himself in a sticky situation, pun intended. The budding sector could see a lot of interest from prospective consumers looking to take their first regulated toke, but there might also be some pushback from those who worry about the impact the formerly illegal substance can have on the body, the mind, and the economy. Bruce has his work cut out for him, but he's also a grinder. With his products still in limbo when it comes to the U.S. market, he's opening up about the future of cannabis innovation. In this episode, he talks about what it's like to party with Snoop Dogg, teaching his sons about weed, and his strange nighttime routine. Here's our conversation. Okay, so I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but I gotta ask, have you ever smoked cannabis? So, yes, I have, and it was when I was in university. And I think like many people, I'm not necessarily a fan of combusting things and inhaling the result. Rather than understanding what I was getting, I jumped right in the deep end with people who consumed a lot of cannabis. And the effect was that I became the entertainment for the next hour or two because I was disproportionately stoned to those people who could use it uh, more effectively than me. And I, I give you that detail and that I think a big part of the group and the cohort that are going to be interested in cannabis in Canada may or may not have used it before, probably haven't purchased it illegally in the last year or two, and likely would prefer to get it from a, a stabilized, responsible supplier that says, this is probably a, um, we'll call it a moderate on-ramp for you. You don't want to try and pretend you're Snoop Dogg, because I believe, having hung out with Snoop now several times, um, he would have been just fine with the product that I used the first time, and I was not. So I'm sorry, I just have to go back. You say you hang out with Snoop Dogg on a regular basis? Well, I, I wouldn't say we hang out. So um, I respect how he conducts his business, and I believe he respects how uh, we conduct ours. And so as recently as not this past Saturday, the Saturday before, he came to Smith Falls, which is essentially three hours east of Toronto, one hour southwest of Ottawa, and about three hours west of Montreal, so sort of equidistant from everything, meaning in the middle of nowhere. What we do is um, each year in order to appreciate the community, and we've done this for the last three years, we say if you live in the community, you can have a free ticket to the show that we put on our front lawn. If you live outside the community, you need to pay 20 bucks, and we take all that money, aggregate it together, and we dedicate it to creating a better community. And the first year, we had some acts. Uh, The opening act has been consistent each year, which are my two boys and their band. 
and they're the ripe old age of 15 and 17 now. <laughs> and then there's five or six acts through the course of the day. So it starts at one and by 10 o'clock this year, Snoop Dogg did a whole one hour and plus set. And it was amazing and was most amazing because it was in that town I described, which had also been really quite downtrodden by Hershey departing and most of the other employers. So uh, the town hadn't had many really great things happen in the last 15 years until a marijuana company occupied the biggest building and then ultimately brought Snoop to have a party on a front lawn and uh, do a great set on Saturday night. It's so interesting. So tell me a little bit about your sons. Like, I think it's so amazing that they play this festival, which the proceeds end up going towards the community. There's some advantages and disadvantages of having me for a dad. <laughs> the disadvantage list is reasonably long. I work fairly hard. I'm very busy and uh, I can't always make it to everything. The advantages of the list include uh, getting to open for the shindig each year. And so they've had a band together for probably five or six years. And my eldest son, who's now 17, uh, he will be very unhappy if I don't point out that Adam Linton is his name. And you can get his music on Spotify, SoundCloud, and a variety of other platforms, which I am not expert on. Are you their manager? I have to ask. Are you their manager? I'm their roadie. I carry stuff. What I was most (laughs) impressed was um, Snoop came to town. I took him for dinner at one of the local little restaurants where it kind of got whispered out. So the restaurant was particularly busy that evening. And we went over to our business in the office, and I, I was going to give him a tour, and I wanted to introduce him to my family, my uh, two boys and my wife. And uh, my son, who's the eldest, Adam, says, Dad, can you ask uh, Snoop if he would make a promotional uh, video or something for me? I said, listen, I don't even know what you're asking. But Snoop heard. He goes, tell me what's the drop. Oh. And uh, right away, he takes, it, takes the phone and says, uh, you know, sort of, yo, 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 you got to listen to uh, Birthdays and Funerals by my nephew, Adam. And uh, next thing you know, Adam's gone from opening six bands before to now he has a recommendation video by Snoop, which he's articulated into a late, I think he might now be over 200 or 2,000, some number of uh, Spotify people doing something on Spotify. I'm still waiting for him to actually just, you know, burn me a CD so I can play it in my old car because that's kind of like where I am on the uh, technology adoption curve for Spotify. I think it's so heartwarming that you take the time for your family. What inspired you to make it a priority? The very first person who hired me is a fellow that's made himself, I think he's now probably a multi-billionaire, and he made it by being a technology guy and a real estate guy. But I noticed when I was young and had no family that he would leave us in foreign jurisdictions working on projects all weekend, but he would go home. My only question, I remember the first time he he said, well, you know, you guys got to stay in New York. Okay, well, who's paying for the hotel when we stay in New York? The company. Okay, who's paying for what we eat? The company. And what if we went out and drank? Who's paying for that? He said, the company. He said, it's no hitch here, right? This isn't a trick. He's like, no, I'm going home. You guys can stay and work. I'm like, I don't know why everybody doesn't work every weekend. This is awesome. <laughs> but then when you get to have kids and stuff, you realize, actually, I understand what he was doing. And it made sense. Yeah. Do you have children or no? No, I don't. No, not anytime soon either. Well, I, I, I'm, uh, I do not like children other than my own. So, you know, to use that as a clarifying statement, I am not someone who said, oh, my God, kids are awesome. Um, <laughs> but my kids are awesome because they're my kids. Mm-hmm. But I think what you'll find is that um, if you do have kids and people can choose not to or whatever, but they are like the most interesting people you'll ever meet if you actually take time to meet them. Okay, so now I want to kind of 
touch on your work experience. Cannabis hasn't always been a legally recognized industry. I'm wondering, how do you navigate being one of the innovators at the forefront? You need to be a nerd, I think is very helpful. Um, so like, I'm kind of like, I like technology, I like public policy. Uh, as we're walking through to the room where we're doing this interview, I like free newspapers, um, because I think all of those combinations actually really shape, if you're going to exit prohibition, if you're going to create something that is going to be heavily regulated, you have to rely on technology in order to make it scale. You have to be of the view that rules are made to be followed and evolved, but not broken. The reason I stepped into the sector is because of a newspaper, right? Like headlines have stories. And if you read the story and you think about it, there's probably like a hundred good businesses presented in a newspaper every day. Mm -hmm. And the one that I saw was that back in uh, 2012, Stephen Harper of the Conservatives was our Prime Minister and that the police chiefs of Canada were not happy with the then current laws regarding marijuana because it was not evident who was a criminal and who was not because he didn't have to inform the police if he had the legal right to grow cannabis. And so what they decided was that the police chiefs would complain to Harper. And my theory was that Mr. Harper would be very unlikely to get reelected if he didn't have the support of the people who liked the police and that wasn't going to be as likely if the police were unhappy with a visible file, so he's going to fix it. And with that, I started digging around what the public policy was and might be, and it became pretty evident that they were going to govern this not about how you grow cannabis, but how you don't lose it. Mm-hmm. And they were, that means keeping track of everything. And they were going to govern it not by what you sold it for, but what you didn't put on it. So there could be no application of any chemicals, so there was going to be a lot of lab testing and controls. And so... From my perspective, I thought I'm pretty good at not losing things, having had software companies that kept track of data packets that were going between banks. Those seemed like they'd be harder to keep track of than grams of marijuana. And so you mentioned uh, your public policy work. You have a degree in it. And cannabis at one time was once illegal. There are people now who still have a criminal record because of it. How are you dealing with the juxtaposition of it now be incredibly profitable with the fact that there are people who are still dealing with the repercussions of once smoking, owning, growing. Yeah, so there's there's two cohorts there. One which um, I've had several meetings and discussions and discussions about funding, which is if as of uh, October 17th, um, you had 30 grams or less of cannabis, you would not be a criminal in Canada. But if you had more than 30 grams after that date, then it would be a criminal event and that there should be alignment on the basis of pardons. So if the fellow happened to be driving down the road and accidentally got caught with a, caught with a tractor trailer full of cannabis by the police, that would be a problem today, tomorrow, in the past, and in the future. That is not the person who should get a pardon. Mm-hmm. That is someone who's an active drug dealer. But if the individual had 30 grams or less after October 17th, we should actually see them receiving a full pardon and have no implication upon their ability to travel or gain employment. If they have 31 grams, too bad, buddy. There's got to be a line, and it's not, you can't just pick it. Well, he only had 80 grams. He only had 200 kilograms. No, you got to pick the line, I think, that is a lawful division under the new policy. Gotcha. And so how do you have a discussion with your sons when it comes to marijuana? Well, I think um, we have a visitor center now open at uh, the Smith Falls facility, and people, including with their children, can come in, learn about the history of cannabis, the science of cannabis, then see cannabis plants at various states. And I refer to that as sort of like swimming lessons for cannabis. And my kids have had a lot of swimming lessons for cannabis because they understand uh, a lot about it, which means they're unlikely to find themselves in harm related to cannabis because they comprehend why you'd have to be completely out of your noggin 
to actually just buy a bag from somebody where you don't even know, did this get transited across our country in the same hockey bag as fentanyl? Um, did the person who grow it have any obligation to ever wash their hands or is there fecal chloroform, human shit on the product? Oh God. Um, yeah. So one of my campaigns I think is going to help people migrate from the illicit market to the illicit market is it's not about taxes. It's going to say, do you want shit or good shit? And Literally. ultimately, I think people will quite frankly choose to go for the good shit, which may not be even more costly, but you got to break people's patterns. And sometimes that takes a bit more of a statement that's uh, forceful than not. But my kids have been coming to the facility from the day I began building the thing and they understand it. They're proud to wear the shirts. They explain to people the difference between medical and even my mother, who I was unsure how to explain that the hell this business was going to be about, is now a patient. And do you find that you have to do a, a lot of educating when it comes to talking to the public about cannabis legalization? The sector does need a spokesperson, and the person has to welcome the duty of explaining it. You know, I probably have had more than 500 or 1,000 times where people have said, well, there's no clinical trial data. Mm-hmm. Well, there is some, but honestly, do you believe the illicit market is in the business of running clinical trials? Mm-hmm. When something's illegal, do you expect the bike gangs to shell out to run a clinical trial? Like, it's just a nonsensical statement, but you can't get frustrated at that. You simply have to explain the progression against that outcome people want. And so you mentioned being a spokesperson. I have to ask, you're a white man, and in this industry, the people who have been prosecuted in the past are often brown or black. Do you experience any pushback or criticism? Oh, I would say on a daily basis. And I think the... the I'm not sure in Canada the demographic which has been uh, disadvantaged necessarily represents the same as America, Um, but I do think that it's created a problem for many marginalized uh, areas. The pushback I get isn't because I'm a suit and a white guy. Um, The pushback I get has been, what's wrong with you? Why would you associate with cannabis because it's such a questionable topic? I'm not saying that cannabis is good for anyone or bad for anyone. I think that's um, a fact set that is being developed right now, but I think generally in any topic, being negatively biased against something which you have no knowledge or evidence as to why you're biased, but you're just that way because is an absolutely ridiculous way to go through life. And so I've experienced it in a disproportionate amount of individuals as it relates to cannabis and why would you do that, including some family members who think it's just terrible that my children now have to be exposed to cannabis as a topic that became normalized. Um, And you don't know who's going to take that approach. It could be someone who's highly educated or someone who's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, someone who's young or old. There isn't a pattern I've yet observed as to who will have that bias. And usually there's something behind it, but it's not often easy to get people to be transparent about what their bias is based on because sometimes they don't know and sometimes they don't want to say. So what happens if the demand for cannabis isn't as high as people are predicting? I think the first wave of products are going to be purchased because it's novel on a regulatory basis, not optimal on a product shape basis. But there's an obligation of Health Canada to introduce new and more advanced formats of products in the second half of 2019, not so that you can have a better time or I can run a better business, but so that we can compete more effectively with the illicit market. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you'll see things like vape pens, but I think more importantly, you'll see things that I would call ingestibles, not edibles. Ingestible means that you could drink or chew. And uh, if we then can make beverages with Constellation, which we've already worked our way through largely, the have a very rapid onset that are clear, have no calories, trigger a much more positive, uplifting feeling than uh, happens with alcohol. I think that the next wave of products are going to be massively more interesting and popular than the first ones. 
and that the stretching exercise of the first nine months will have been helpful but not really indicative of what's going to occur over the duration of the opportunity. What are your thoughts about Canada becoming a leader when it comes to the cannabis industry? Well, I think we shouldn't take too much credit at the current time. And that's because in 2001, it became legal in cannabis for can- Canada for cannabis, which really was the second country in the world and the most well-regulated And that was because the Supreme Court uh, upheld the Charter of Rights, saying that if there is a medical benefit in something, you can't withhold it from a Canadian citizen. And so um, I think quite a lot of credit should go to the early people who did the legal fights more than the people who got arrested because they were not careful. Um, Those early people that did those legal fights actually succeeded in convincing something at a court that hasn't otherwise been replicated generally around the globe. And so the fact that we are a good old boring Canada, which, you know, as Canadians, we all know, like, um, we love to stand in line to buy liquor from our state government at a maximum price, simply because that's the way we like to do things. And so I I just find um, it's kind of a good place to be from for doing this. It's better to be from conservative, cautious, well lined up, pay our taxes, love rules Canada. Now the Acura Innovation Series. Sometimes improving performance isn't just about power, it's about bringing the joy of driving to a forgotten audience. In 2000, Acura introduced the MDX, the world's first seven-passenger crossover vehicle. Finally, families didn't have to sacrifice excitement to get the space they needed. It's that dedication to every driver that defines the next generation of precision crafted performance. Visit Acura.ca to discover their current lineup. Okay, so the next section is what we like to call rapid fire. It's high impact. It's really fun. You'll do great. Ready? Yes. What is your greatest fear? No microphone. (laughs) What do you do for fun? Try to succeed. What motivates you? Fear of failing. Tell me about your perfect day off. No cell coverage. What is your pet peeve? My absence of patience. What's one word that your friends would use to describe you? Intense. What's your favorite movie? Probably Animal House or Caddyshack, both quality. Favorite Snoop Dogg song? Uh, Drop it like it's hot just because it's old and you just hear it and know it. It's classic. It's classic. How many hours on average do you sleep per night? Four and a half, two awake, two asleep. What are you doing? Well, no, I sleep, I sleep, I sleep like a rock. Like I sleep so deeply (laughs) for about four hours, four hours and 15 minutes. And then I wake up going, that was awesome. (laughs) Except it's not awesome because it's 2.30 in the morning. So then do you just work? No, I get up and I I go and patrol our house. I make sure all the neighbors, you know, nothing going on in the neighborhood. Try to spend like the next hour trying to have my brain sort of shut down. So I have this whole system where I try to basically picture like completely tranquil water and just completely calm, calm, calm. And then you fall back to sleep and then it's time to get up. What do you mean by patrol the neighborhood? Oh, I just get up and walk around and look out all the windows, see what's going on. (laughs) But there's nothing going on. So far, so good. But what happens if I quit patrolling? eh? You never know. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, and I shut the doors so the cat can't get to the kids and make sure the cat's where they think the cat should be because, you know, you got to know where the cat is and all these things. Yeah, yeah. So, but it could be be correlated or it could be random, but the first clinical trial we're running uh, for the use of cannabinoids is on how to cause a more durable sleep pattern. 
Mm. And it's not because of me, but I am symptomatic of many people who wake up in the middle of the night because I have no physiological reason to wake up. It's called sleep-based anxiety. And so your brain shuts down completely, has this great sleep. And then what happens is this little gremlin starts running around asking questions about what are you working on? What, how about would this work? Could you do that? Would this work? What happened to that person? Where's that going to go? And so the gremlin wakes you up. And a huge proportion of society, particularly those people with jobs that involve things like making investments, being a producer, all the, all the jobs where decisions are your job, decisions result in a lot of good ones and some not optimal ones. And those, those are the things that wake you up in the middle of the night. And it doesn't happen to everybody. It doesn't happen at the uniform age. But you will find that um, once it starts happening, it's a thing that keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's a very good market. Essentially, the competitive product would be something like Ambien. And those products aren't very well liked because they're not very well tolerated. When you start getting into uh, benzo sleep aids, that's not really the right end of the pool. Oh, my. The next section is called the big three. We ask you three big personal questions. The first one is what piece of advice would you tell your younger self? I think if it was easy, everybody would do it. I have never figured out a easy and direct path to anything. And my mother has pointed that out to me for about 30 years. Um, but it still frustrated me ridiculously early on that exactly what I thought should happen didn't happen when I tried it. And if you could do it all over again, you know, creating Canopy, like what would you do differently? Probably be a bit more cautious at the beginning because I was a little bit, it was such an unusual response I got from everybody that I presented this to. So the first three or four people I asked, you know, what do you think of this idea to want to start it with me? Thought I'd lost my marbles. Mm -hmm. And so then you start wondering, is this actually a good idea? Because it was early enough. And so I, you know, I onboarded a few people early on just because they were willing to do it rather than my usual wages, I'm pretty demanding. Mm -hmm. And I want to do it with only the people I think they're extraordinarily capable. Um, you know, you evolve out of that. But I think at the beginning, I got a little bit almost caught off guard by how many people thought it was such a horrible idea. And where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, I think this has got another five-year plan for Bruce. And everything goes in five-year plans. So anytime you sign up to something, you should decide how many five-year segments you're going to do. If you do less than five years, I don't think you actually learn it. And so I think uh, with the globalization, this is the most interesting thing I could work at for the next five years. Thank you to Bruce Linton for sharing his story. Now we want to hear your story. Make sure to hit me up online. I'm at Takara Small on Twitter, or you can email the show at podcast at globeandmail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. It's executive produced by Kieran Reyna and Katrina Bolak with editorial assistance from David Michaels. For more stories about entrepreneurship, visit theglobeandmail.com. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next week.